to the Stars Above podcast, your hopefully podcast source for any Singapore astronomy news. So yeah, as we all know, yeah, our last episode was actually on March 25th, so sorry about that. Life, specifically school, got it away, but we're trying to get things back on track. So uh, right now in Singapore, we are experiencing a phase two highlight, so it's going to be a bit difficult to join any actual observation actually observation sessions that are being held by different schools or organizations so i thought that maybe we can start an interview with local astronomers to help share the experiences with the local astronomy scene so any uh, prospective astronomers out there can actually like live in their shoes for a while while we ha- while we are not able to actually observe nowadays so our first guest will be sharad who's an nus undergraduate majoring double majoring in computer science and physics he's in an astronomy nut since he can remember and was the nus astronomy general secretary from 2019 to 2020 and is a very noted sci-fi enthusiast how are you sharad hi brian i am good today thanks for inviting me to stars above <laughs> uh yep right yeah so i think uh, one question that i like to ask anyone i meet who's interested in ast- astronomy right is how do you actually start this sort of hobby? Okay, uh, this, uh, as you noted earlier, is actually a childhood hobby. Um, mm-hmm. pa- passion, more like, because I have always, always been interested in space for as long as I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was, I think, three or four, I attended a convention at Suntec City hosted by National Geographic, uh, where they introduced the Mars exploration rovers that hadn't yet launched back then i think it was 2001 or two mm-hmm. that would actually make me about five actually yeah uh that was my first real recollection of anything to do with space and ever since then i've been pretty much you know devouring anything to do with astro- astronomy astrophysics space in general uh when i used to go to the library with my parents uh the i would make a, a beeline right for the non-fiction every all, all of my friends and you know their siblings, all of them would go, you know, to the fiction and read story. Well, not not that there's mm-hmm. anything wrong with that, you know, different strokes to different folks, but I was always a bit uh, nerdy back then. So I'll go straight to the nonfiction section, you know, look up, I think it was 3.30 in the Dewey Decimal System. Uh, <laughs> system. Actually, I still remember. It, yeah. it might be 3.30, I can't recall. Might be 300 something. And uh, immediately go for the astronomy section and just you know pick up any book that was interesting i usually used to i would read some books over and over again because the graphics in those books were more interesting but over time you know uh, this uh, passion kind of solidified you know as i took a more formal education in science and you know later on in secondary school in physics it solidified into a real, a real interest in astronomy astrophysics uh, cosmology and mainly you know uh, extraterrestrial intelligence and exobiology right so this is how everything started it's quite a quite an interesting journey i've had so far and and now most recently i've taken a couple of modules in university itself mm-hmm. about well, uh, astrophysics modules and uh, general education modules so that's that's it so far i hope to you know i hope to never ever stop with astronomy because <laughs> i feel like there's nothing uh, there's so much unexplored. Yeah. Yep. I think a lot of people that I've met also sort of had the same experience because 
school-wise, we don't really learn much astronomy within the syllabus of the school, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think the primary five syllabus stops with the seven plan. The mm. sorry, the eight, <laughs> eight or nine planets uh, in the solar system, and you know, quick introduction to asteroids. When I was doing my primary five syllabus, they hadn't revised the science syllabus back then, so Pluto was still included. <laughs> uh, I did my my primary five was in. 2008 and they revised it to the end of 2006 so they hadn't had enough time to revise the syllabus to you know demote pluto but uh, yeah yeah i think <laughs> that that was pretty much the limit of you know any real astrophysics yeah uh, yep so i think like a lot of people who like join this type of enjoy this type of hobby sort of some more self-driven rather than something that is pushed from push from school uh. like maybe if you compare to say sports they maybe start going for it because they're more physically and the school will sort of push them towards it but for astronomy i think it's more of a more self-driven one so i think more a lot of the people i do meet who are into astronomy are actually very passionate about it yeah i mean i i would i would find that that's actually very very common right uh because it's just it's just where we live you know it doesn't really lend itself to being pushed by someone and yeah, astronomy yeah. intrinsically isn't something that you can push someone into you know yeah. uh you can you either get it or you don't um a lot of people are like you know uh, you know it doesn't really affect my daily life uh, especially in singapore you know you can't really see the stars so the night sky is just like a gray patch you can't really yeah. see much anyway but uh for those who are really interested you know it it like you said it's we are really really passionate about it Mm, yeah, yeah. So yes, you spoke of the sort of the very poor conditions when it comes to observation here in Singapore, right? Mm-hmm. So I that I think of the people I know that want to start astronomy but haven't yet. Cite that, and as well as the it the lack of familiarity with whatever equipment that they're gonna use as the reasons why they don't actually go and engage in this hobby so for you in your opinion if someone was to start out astronomy right what type of equipment do you think they have to own or is there like opposite way you don't actually have to own any equipment um when it comes when it comes to observing in singapore uh yeah i mean yes there's not much to observe but the thing the advantage is that what you can observe is generally very accessible right you know usually limited to planets the brighter uh obviously the brightest object the moon um you can even do solar observations you know uh during the daytime uh, not you don't need to restrict yourself to you know looking at things at night um when it comes to equipment when you really when you start out you don't really need anything i feel you know uh you don't need to buy yourself a $10,000 <laughs> gigantic telescope and, you know, uh, and, and just, just have, just get it because you want it. But that's, 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 I don't think that is necessary. Um, you can start off with the naked eye, actually. Uh, maybe get a pair of cheap $10, $20 binoculars that uh, magnify things. And you can already start see, making out some significant detail when it comes to the brighter, nearer planets like Mars. You know, it's just a red dot, right? But with, yeah. through a pair of binoculars, you can actually make out, you know, uh, the surface. You can make out surface features. For when it comes to Venus, you can make out the phases of Venus. 
just like you know, just like the moon has phases, Venus has phases. You might see a crescent, you might see a uh, quarter, uh, quarter phase, so on and so forth. So, equipment-wise, I don't think really you do, you need anything very sophisticated. I think the biggest thing is you know you must you must want to do it because in Singapore, again. Uh, observation of any kind is very difficult because of the light pollution so if you want to do something a bit more serious then you'll have to uh, consider okay uh, i can't do it from where i live uh, well you can again um uh, may i shouldn't say you can't but you can but again you'll have to spend you'll have to spend money and time on it so if you want to be a bit more bare bones with your equipment you have to uh, take the trade off and go to a remote a remote place in Singapore. Kranji is one. Changi is another. Uh, these are these are pretty much the most remote places I can look at. If you want to camp overnight, Pulau Bin is a good idea, right? Uh, but besides that, uh, if you want to start out, passion is what is really really required. Equipment is comes after you know you you've you know dipped your toes in the water for about you know for a year or so actually i i actually never had any equipment until i joined uh my astronomy club in junior college i i love the night sky i i could pick out a fair few constellations every time but i never really had any equipment of my own until i joined an astronomy society and i ended up upgrading and even then it's not a it's not a dedicated telescope. It's just a DSLR with a big lens and uh, and a, and a tracking mount. So and this was a very recent purchase. So I I call myself an astro nerd or astro astronomy nut, so to speak. But I haven't had the equipment to observe because sometimes uh, thinking about it is good enough. Yeah, I agree. It's the imagination that gets you to really push yourself to do these uh, mm-hmm. observations. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, just now, as I, just now you mentioned something briefly about sort of like uh, extraterrestrial stuff. And I know since I've known you for, I don't know, four, three, four years now, mm-hmm. you were quite interested in like aliens or like exobiology. So mm. like, why not, uh, did this type of interest also stem from your first experience with astronomy, which is the Mars rover. So that idea of going to another planet and maybe discovering something there. Is it also the seed for this interest in exobiology? Uh not really. The Mars rover was just was just a cool novelty uh when I was a kid. Uh I wouldn't say it really stemmed from that, but it has been a very burgeoning interest of mine at least in the past half decade or so because because of the sheer, you know, the, the sheer unimaginability of it, the sheer uh, mind-blowing quality to it. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, if you talk about aliens, everybody will say it's, you know, purely in the realm of science fiction. Yeah. But it is something that when you actually think about it, it's extremely possible, right? When you just mm-hmm. consider the sheer size of the universe and how many thick, how many galaxies, how many stars and how many planets orbit those stars right the probability just goes way up so this is what really piqued my interest but when i started thinking about it about seven eight years ago i can't really recall any trigger but this this is this is this is how it started basically yeah speaking of 
the probability of finding alien life, right? As you mentioned, there's like countless number of stars, countless number of planets. But, and sort of, and so that means eventually there will be a like life form out there, intelligent life form, because there's almost infinite amounts of places, right? That already can happen. But mm-hmm. so far, like we haven't really found evidence of any life form yet. Not to mention intelligence life, intelligent life, but just any like sort of semi-complex life form. Why do you think that is? Um. First of all, I think intelligent life is not that common. Might be common, but not that common. That's number one. Number two, um, the distances involved in communication are quite big, right? Even if we happen to have an intelligent civilization in our galaxy, right? Any any random point in our galaxy, how would we know about them or how would they know about us? The fastest, the speed limit of the universe is the speed of light. So let's say if you have a civilization that's 3,000 light years away, that word itself kind of gives you an indication as to how long it would take for any radio transmission that you make from Earth to reach that civilization, 3,000 years. And we humans have only been doing any sort of serious serious radio communication in the past 60 to 70 years and even then we have only had we've only stepped up concerted efforts in the past you know uh 20 to 30 years so if you imagine like a sphere or like a bubble of radio transmissions around earth this the radius of this bubble is about 30 light years that's in the grand scheme of things okay uh in the human scale that's huge obviously but in the grand scheme of things compared to the galaxy that we are in compared to the rest of the universe that's absolutely minute right um not not just that i mentioned you know first point uh, intelligent civilizations are uh, we might we uh, life might be common extra extraterrestrial life might be fairly common but on earth itself it took about three three and a half billion years of evolution to get to where humans are and you know as far as we know humans are the first and only intelligent uh, sapient life form on earth so far mm-hmm. right so all when when you think of when you when you think about all of this from one point yeah life seems very very co- life might at first appear to be very common because of the numbers involved but there's also a very diminishing probability of intelligent life appearing on a planet after life has formed on that planet because it it's it's not you know it's it's not like a, an end goal of life you know it does not necessarily mean that any life that evolves on a planet has to end up intelligent mm-hmm. we just happened to be at the right place at the right time you know uh, about 10 million years ago africa dried up so suddenly all the monkeys that were you know climbing through trees suddenly became very intelligent and had to walk with two legs on a grassland that used to be a rainforest, right? So that's what that's what gave us our bipedalism. That's what gave us. Uh, that's what gave our ancestors our intelligence, uh, and so on and so forth. So it was a series of very fortunate events to use, so to speak. And not to mention, I also mentioned this bubble, right? I'm just just tying everything together. You know, you you will have to have all of these potential intelligent civilizations pointing their sensors or their communicators or their radio dishes exactly at Earth or in the general direction of the solar system at the very least for us to be able to detect any of these uh, civilizations out there, which 
when you think about it, is not likely to happen just yet. Um, I, I do I did say just yet, so it is possible. You know, with increasing time, you know, the pos- the probability of contacting an intelligent civilization will definitely increase. I feel, but right now, uh, this is the reason why we haven't contacted, or why we why nothing has happened yet, or why it seems like we are alone, right? But I doubt that we are alone. There probably is intelligence out there. It's just not very common, and it's it will be very hard for us to talk to each other, even if we find that they that you know they exist. Yeah, I guess that's quite sort of understandable. Mm. Like, there's a chance that it's out there, but the chance that we contact this specific planet that hosts this life form, not to mention intelligent life, is still quite small. Yep, mm, yeah. yeah. Right then, like, speaking of planets, right? So what type of, like, as we observe, like, in the solar system itself, it's a very sort of sweet Goldilocks zone of range of areas and conditions that sort of support life. So, what type of conditions do you think would be needed for an alien to sort of exist and live in a planet? Right, this is this is more of a statistics problem in <laughs> because we only have the one data point, Earth. Right, so humans are, or at least sci- human scientists are bound to impose Earth-like conditions on another planet that is orbiting another star because it makes sense, right? Because yeah. you, know, you, you kind of extrapolate. But again, the number one rule of data is that you do not extrapolate. So despite that, uh, it is it still is a fair assumption because water all right, uh, is a very good solvent. Uh, in other words, you can dissolve solids and then you, know, you can have things floating around inside the water that you can later use for chemical reactions. That is number one. So the presence of liquid water, not just water, but liquid water. Water is abundant in the universe in the form of ice. But whether it's liquid requires, you know, a specific pressure, a specific atmospheric pressure, a specific temperature. So if your atmospheric pressure is limited to Earth, you know, water is only liquid in the range of 0 Celsius to 100 Celsius. If the pressure increases or decreases, it changes. But let's not go there. Uh, It gets very complicated. That is one. Uh, number two, you ha- you should have access to a bunch of volatile gases, right? Uh, volatile, reactive, or at the very least, somewhat interesting gases. <laughs> Some of these gases include ammonia. They're, they're generally not very agreeable to uh, life as a whole, but they are interesting because of what they produce, right? Ammonia, carbon dioxide, and methane. Uh, specifically, ammonia and methane. So... Uh, why are these interesting? Uh, we'll come to that as I introduce the third factor. You need a source of energy, right? It can be anything. It can be, uh, you know, a parent star. It can be a source of volcanism. It can be, you know, a lightning even. Or it can be some magnetic field around the planet. Or it can be, you know, the orbital motion of, let's say, a moon around a planet. So you might have heard of the moon Io which yeah. is in orbit around you, around Jupiter. It is the most volcanic uh, object in the solar system. But it's not. it doesn't have any plate tectonics like Earth does. The reason for its volcanism is because it is pushed and pulled by another moon of Jupiter, Europa, and Jupiter itself. So we call, these, we call this tidal forces. So if you 
push and pull an object, if you stretch and compre compress a spring, for instance, it gets very, very hot very quickly. So that's pretty, that's pretty much what's happening to Ayo. So long story short, you need, uh, you need water, you need some sort of reactant, and you need an energy source. And note that this energy source can't be too strong. So if you have an incredibly bright parent star that is blasting, you know, gamma rays and ultraviolet and x-rays at the planet you'll you just sterilize the planet because you know any life form that forms or any any complex molecule that forms is just going to be broken down by the intense energy so mm. like you mentioned it has to be ev everything has to be just right you know echoes the story of Goldilocks right she just she wanted the bed that was just right she wanted the soup that was just right she wanted um, she wanted the chair that was just right so that's why they called it the Goldilocks zone. Uh, it's basically a zone where around the parent star you can find all these right... Con you might... You cannot... I, I shouldn't say you can, but you might find all these right conditions for life to potentially... Or life as we know it to potentially exist. So, like I said, you know, we only have the one data point. So, we can't... We can't... We have some ideas of how life might look like. Uh, using some other chemicals, but these are the three most important uh, things that scientists so far have pinned down, you know, water, reactants, energy. So when you combine these, uh, scientists in the 1960s did a very interesting experiment called the Miller-Urey experiment. So what they did was they had a bit of water, they pumped in ammonia gas, carbon methane, and uh, carbon dioxide. And, you know, they, they start, they sent electric arcs through the gas. Uh, a week later, they found that the interior of the container that they conducted the experiment in was covered with this kind of slimy, foamy substance. And when they tested what the substance was, it was actually made up of proteins. Right? Very interesting. So you form proteins from something that's completely not organic whatsoever, except, you know, methane. Right? And this is very, very interesting because it leads to the idea of abiogenesis. Well, this, it's, it sounds like a complicated word, but when you break it down, A means not, bio means life, genesis means creation. So life created from something that's not alive, which is, which sounds again, once, once again, very much in the realm of science fiction, but it is definitely a very active uh, field of research in real science labs today because there are, a lot of theories floating around that this is most likely the way that life evolved on Earth. And if it's going to evolve anywhere else in the universe, this is how it's going to evolve, you know, combined with these three uh, ingredients, so to speak, water, reactants, energy, and all in the right amounts, all, all in the right quantities, all in the right uh, places, you can potentially form life. There are some unanswered questions like how did, DNA come about or did proteins come first or did DNA and RNA come first but you know that go that, that that's a little bit a uh, bit more advanced and uh, even scientists haven't solved that question yet so it's, it's a bit of a moot point to discuss that but the fact remains that you can make things that we see made by living things in real life and one more point is that uh, a lot of um, some people might say, you know, but but life might seem like an intelligent design kind of thing. You know, someone might have designed it. But 
symmet- but the thing is that symmetry and order are actually very common in the universe because they uh that there are physical reasons behind this uh because they represent lower energy levels or so to speak they're more stable so it is actually advantageous for a bunch of molecules to go and group together and form a nice stable structure right and in in a grander scheme of things life forms are very stable structures right they and they appear to you know decrease so-called entropy or disorder because you know you have this bunch of random molecules and atoms that somehow manage to form a life form mm-hmm. but you know this is this is once again a manifestation of the whole universe somehow having an intrinsic tendency to go towards you know symmetry and order you know like when you look at living things they are symmetrical right uh, so all of these factors are some reasons why you know scientists think that life not just possible but very very likely out there you know because the conditions for life it's it, they're not anything there's no there's no magic you know ingredient or magic breath that you need to push into every single rock and suddenly it turns into a living thing no they're just normal atoms and molecules chemicals that are found everywhere in the universe with processes that take place outside of life forms as well in the universe that are just that just happen to have arisen due to the physical laws of the universe uh yeah so this is this is this is pretty much how this is kind of an umbrella introduction to <laughs> exobiology so to speak you know yeah All right, this that was quite intense. I can feel the <laughs> your intense passion for exobiology here. So I think before we end off, let's talk about something more interesting. Mm, so sure. out of all the aliens that have been depicted in pop culture, right, like say mm-hmm. Halo, Star Wars, all those type, what is your favorite alien? My favorite alien, uh, hard to say. Uh, I kind of like the flood. Because you know they are zombies taken to an extreme level, right? Uh, because you know they 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 are actually intelligent zombies. The flood from Halo, it's actually uh-huh. a it's actually a, a virus kind a, a virus disease thing. The canon is not very clear on exactly what it is. It's clear on how it ca- where it came from, but they're not clear on the intricate biological details of the flood. Uh. There is, yeah. there is one thing that is actually common in all aliens across, uh, or in most alien life forms or intelligent alien life forms across uh, science fiction or sci-fi, is that they are quadrupeds and they are humanoid. You know, you have one head, two hands, and two legs. I mm. just feel like that is not that is some that is just because that is just to allow a human audience to relate. To understand the content, the thing. Yeah. right? Because you know, it's it's not it's not guaranteed. You know, nobody says that every single alien should look like a human with one head, two hands, and two legs. You know, you could have an intelligent starfish, or you can have an intelligent squid. Even on Earth, we have very strange, you know, we have very very strange life forms that you know just happen to not be intelligent because they're not. Full stop. You could have a you could have an intelligent sapient thinking jellyfish you know what's you know, what's what's stopping uh what's what's stopping alien uh, an intelligent jellyfish for instance you know you, could, you that that could happen and jellyfishes are very strange you know it's just a floating bag of water effectively 
right? Mm-hmm. That eats that somehow eats things, eats fish, and just floats around. But when you think about it, it's super, it's super cool. But yeah, uh, this is why I like the flood because they are actually that is one of the more original depictions of alien life I've seen. Uh, you know, it kind of uh, assimilates all kind all life forms to form a super life form, and its only dedicated goal is to eradicate all form of sapient sentient life in the universe which is kind of scary to think about but also very interesting yeah <laughs> all right i think that's all we have for today mm. thank you Sharad. i think we learned a lot about how a average singaporean i guess to love astronomy and also about some something new about exobiology which i think not a lot of people are very very familiar with but it does sound extremely interesting Thanks, uh, thanks for inviting me, Brian. I mean, I was I was glad to share my passion with with you and with the rest of our audience. I hope, you know, it it leads everyone down a Wikipedia rabbit hole <laughs> of jumping through articles because that's that's pretty much how I develop my passion. You know, Wikipedia is a very very great resource. Thanks, Sharad, and thanks, thanks everyone Brian. for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Stars Above, and see you next time. Bye bye.